And we're at a moment where sort of all all contradictions are heightened, right? Byproduct of the crisis of contemporary capitalism. This week in class politics. Classic fucking boomer. Old new left. Maintaining the relations of neoliberalism. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! 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 Ideas in international, but we're from Canberra. So and we're back. We've plenty to talk about on this episode of Dole Capital. You're with Jacob and Ben. G'day. Uh, yeah. How you going there, buddy? Good, mate. How are you? Excellent. We're joined this evening with um, some fantastic special labor activists and socialist troublemakers. We've got Amy Haddad. We've got Nick Dixon-Wilmhurst. And we have a champion of ACT Women's Monuments, Light Rail, and a Better Working Week, Suzanne Orr, who's the ACT member of the Legislative Assembly um, for the... Um, jurisdiction of Yerby, which is in our um, in our north in the ACT. Um, we are on Patreon, and a big thank you to our um, fantastic uh, supporters, particularly to the um, ageing, united, and bitter popular front, who are some dodgy people that I know who, who love this show. Some kind of inside joke that I'm not in on. No, you're, you're, one day you'll get in on it. You'll be okay. Don't be jealous. But um, if you want to be part of an inside joke between Jacob and I, why not become a patron of Dole Capital? Um, already our subscribers, our supporters to our, for Dole Capital have already enabled us to pay for our RSS feed, which does cost us money to host our recordings on various platforms. So get behind us. We are on Patreon. Uh, you can find us. Just look up Dole Capital, which is D apostrophe O-H-K-A-P-I-T-A-L. That's Dole Capital. Uh, don't think uh, I don't think there's an apostrophe in the in the URL. Oh, so it's just doh. Yeah, I think it's oh, Patreon. I want to say patreon.com forward slash dohkapital. So yeah, get behind that. That's the little uh, thing we got to do at the start of the show because it's mm. really important. We'd like to get some better equipment and yep. the like, and to keep uh, making sure that we get these shows out every mm. month. Uh, we are recording tonight on. Ngunnawal End and pay our respects to the, the Ngunnawal people's elders past and present and emerging whose sovereignty was never ceded and we express our solidarity with their struggles to end continuing injustices for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this part of the world. Um, I just jumped in on you, haven't I, Jacob? Oh, you got it. That's right. You nailed it. Yeah. So let's let's get going. Cool. All right. So we are welcoming, of course, friend of the show, returning guest, Amy Haddad. I think it's her fourth time on the show. Welcome back, Amy. Great to have you. Thank you for having me again. Uh, we've also got, as Ben mentioned, uh, Suzanne Orr, MLA. Thank you for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. And we've got the uh, secretary of the uh, Black Mountain sub-branch here in the ACT. Um, he's my my own personal sub-branch secretary, uh, and he's a legend, Nick Dixon-Wilmshurst. Uh, g'day, guys. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very happy to have you guys on the show. Um, so um, first things first, uh, we're about two weeks now into COVID lockdown in Canberra. We, I think we were probably getting a big... Big uh, head of steam. We're getting pretty full of ourselves there for a while, thinking uh, we were doing, uh, you know, doing so well, not having lockdown. But you know, we've crashed down to earth recently. So, how's everybody going in uh, in lockdown? Amy, how are you going? I'm fine. I already work from home. I 100% predicted this, so it's partly my fault. Um, <laughs> you jinxed us. I jinxed. I jinxed you. I'm mm. sorry. I apologise profusely to the good people. <laughs> uh, Nick, how's it going for you? 
look, I want to take some of the blame as well because I, for the last few weeks before the lockdown, I'd been telling everyone that I had a theory for why Canberra had missed out. And the theory was that our reputation outside of the ACT is that we're boring. And anyone who's infected and looking to escape their lockdown city isn't going to go somewhere more boring than a lockdown city. Mm. They were never going to come here. And I feel like the more that I told people this story, uh, the more the universe was like, screw you, we're locking you down. I think you should feel you should feel ashamed for talking down about our, our glorious bush capital. Well, our glorious bush capital is like one of the best kept secrets, right? Everyone who's here goes, this is great. Yeah. We love it. And hey, look, if you find it boring, that's on you. Yeah, you only um, you only get out what you put in in Canberra. I feel like that's exactly. the rule. Yeah. What about you, Suzanne? How's uh, how's lockdown been going for an MLA? Yeah, look, it's it's good working from home. Um, my yoga studio thankfully has uh, moved online, so I've got my little yoga set up uh, in my work from home office, and I'm very much enjoying that. And my cat's trying to get in on it, but she decided that she'd rather just stare at her reflection in the mirror. So that's working for her. Um, I'm just still doing the yoga. Yeah. <laughs> Great. And Ben, how are you, mate? I am amazing. Yes. Actually, it's funny. I've actually had more work than I've ever wanted. And it seemed to happen every time a lockdown's happened in the ACT. All of a sudden, I've gone from not much work to all sorts of work going on. So that's been interesting. Uh, and yes, the joys of homeschooling and all that sort of stuff is, um, yeah, it's just the continuation. It's just yeah. a new world. And actually, look, I think it's really timely, this discussion, because we are actually getting to um, COVID. It has provided us with some um, fantastic examples of how we can actually look and discuss a new way of organizing our lives in probably mm. a better way. And that's one of the, I think, one of the motivations between um, ourselves and our dear guests uh, in terms of talking about the moves um, to a four-day week and campaigning for a four-day week and what's going on in the ACT with it. Absolutely. Okay, so here's what we're going to cover on the show today. Uh, we're going to start out talking about moving to a four-day work week or reduction in working hours, um, however it might be construed, we'll, we'll get into that, different ways of doing it. Um, we're going to start out talking about it uh, from the perspective of the, the worker um, and how free time rather than you know increased uh, intensified labour and more consumption can benefit their lives. Then we're going to talk about it from a little bit of a broader perspective. We're going to talk about how it might be implemented um, and we might also talk about a few of the, these case studies along the way that um, has been covered in the Standing Committee for Gender and Economic Equality in the ACT Legislature, which, which is conducting this review at the moment. So uh, we'll, we'll be mentioning that as well. And then coming around to bring it home, we're going to talk about the four-day work week and the potential effects it can have in the battle against catastrophic climate breakdown. Um, so that'll be interesting too. Okay. Let me see here. All right. Uh, why don't you tell us? Uh, start off by telling us, Suzanne. You know, you're in the in the ACT legislature. There. How is it that we in the ACT are joining this growing list of jurisdictions and uh, you know civil society corporations, um, sort of looking into this idea of um, messing with the the working week. Yeah, good question. So um, in the Assembly, we have, uh, like in, in a lot of parliaments, in all parliaments, we have a committee structure. One of the committees, the one you mentioned, the uh, Committee on Economic and Gender Equality, or EGI, as we like to call it, um, it has self-referred. So it's decided of its own uh, choosing to 
do an inquiry into the future of the work week. And I think, um, you know, it goes very much to, to what Ben was saying before that, you know, we're, we've had a huge discussion um, since COVID as to what does our work week actually look like. And we've seen lots of other examples around the world where there's been four day work weeks. We've seen work from home become more popular. Um, and the committee, I think it's fair to say in referring the inquiry has, has just said, let's actually have a, have a good look at this in the Canberra context. Um, and I would just note, even though I sit on that committee, I'm not preempting anything they may find. And I'm here speaking uh, in my capacity as an individual. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Nick, let me ask you, um, like as a, an organizer, you know, in the, in the sort of, in the sub branch, um, have you sort of, what, what have you sort of seen in terms of like how party membership have been, I don't know, exposed to this idea? Have you seen like much enthusiasm around it? And, you know, what's, what's kind of in the works on that level in the party kind of apparatus? For me, what I've seen is a lot of mixed reactions to the concept. Yeah. Okay. So like what we want to talk about is, is work, how it's constructed, how it fits into society. And a lot of the time what I've seen is people go, yeah, but how would it like practically work? They go straight down to the mechanism. Like, would I have to take a pay cut to get a four-day week, right? Like, would yeah. I be expected to work more hours in fewer days? Um, and it really comes down to that practical level um, rather than sort of where I kind of want them to be, which is thinking like, well, what do you want your life to look like, right? What do you want to try and do with your life? And how do we structure work and society to let you live the life that you want? Yeah. So it's kind of not just about um, maybe super immediate practical stuff. It's also sort of about um, opening up the possibility for, you know, utopian imaginings for the, the world we live in and the lives that we live, right? Yeah, um, yeah I um, a couple of months ago, I was in a room with a bunch of United Workers Union delegates um, and a few organisers as well. And the question of um, the four-day workweek inquiry came up and I think the organisers in the room were quite surprised by how animated all of these uh, members were by the idea, mm. actually. You know, these are all like blue-collar workers, um, mostly cleaners and security guards, um, and all they wanted to do was talk about like how it would affect their lives and how they thought it should be implemented, um, and they were, yeah, just generally really interested to talk about it. Yeah, so- I was actually, just on that check, I was actually mm. going to ask that point, Nick, like when people just jump to how it works, do you get the sense that it's because they're already down with the idea and they just want to talk about the practicalities? I think there's mixed views. So I think there are some who have internalised the idea that by doing work and by doing lots of work, they somehow have more value. Mm. And so there's kind of this like um, reaction against that in a way or they get into the whole sense of we couldn't ask for that which is another reaction, right? Like this is something that no one's going to give us, so why would we ask for it? What is the point in hoping for something that's never going to happen? Um, And so, yeah, like I think something that I'd like to unpack more because it is these sorts of immediate reactions. Um, There was another example that I got told about in apparently in the construction sector whenever the working hours have been reduced. um, It doesn't mean that they work fewer hours in a week. It means they get paid more. Because all of a sudden, more time, more of their working time is then um, subject to penalty rates. So it's sort of an interesting, different perspective, right? Like the four-day work week all of a sudden becomes a way for people to get more money in their pocket. 
without actually changing the amount of time that they're working. Yeah. So there's like so many different ways that this is being looked at um, when people first hear the concept. And I'm curious to kind of understand why. Uh, okay. Well, um, before we get into the the live, like the sort of the life of the the four day week worker, um, let me set it up a little bit. I want to sort of um, give a little bit of theory and a little bit of history um, to sort of back us in. Um, you know, a lot of the discussion around reduced working hours result revolves around this idea of labor productivity. Now, the standard liberal econ- economist's definition of labor productivity would be something like outputs relative to your inputs. You know, um, the, the greater the quantity and quality of the product that can be turned out with the same inputs, that is, you know, your raw materials, overheads, labor costs, etc., the greater your productivity. But as we all know, under capitalism, the beneficiary of increasing productivity is not you, the worker, but your boss who fronts the capital for all of those inputs and is therefore entitled to all the proceeds of what you produce. As Marx writes in the very important 10th chapter in, in Capital, in the early period of industrial capitalism's history, capitalists who paid a flat weekly wage or daily wage sought to increase the amount of surplus produced by lengthening the working day. And then, as the uh, discussion paper on the future of the working week gives a nice little short history on, uh, if you're interested, in the late 19th century, organized workers' movements all over the industrialized world began to reverse this trend, winning eight-hour workdays in Australia in the 1880s and then with other countries following suit. In general, the length of the working day and week became stabilized through this the bulwark of legislation. Although if you talk to any teacher or chef, um, you'll find out how leaky that bulwark can be. Um, and I'm sure some of you have uh, experience with that. But with the variable of the working day becoming more fixed in the 20th century, product- productivity games have mainly been made through intensification of labor, through a mixture of advancing technology and technique. That is more work getting done in the same amount of time. And in the post-war era, trade unions have been able to leverage this increased productivity into a greater share of surplus in the form of increasing wages. And overall, this has worked pretty well for the capitalist system. Increasingly intensified and alienated work could be well compensated by mass consumption. Uh, But with a few exceptions in the public sector where flexible work arrangements have been implemented, it seems like we never really have been given the option of buying more free time with our productivity gains. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the ACT legislature's Standing Committee on Gender and Economic Equality. Is that right, Suzanne? I got the order of those words right. Yeah, it's Economy and Gender and Economic Equality. So just call it Eggy. Eggy. Okay, Eggy, yes. (laughs) So Eggy's undertaking this review into the future of the working week. And as part of that, there's a discussion paper which looks at six trials of reduced working time in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, love for you to all jump in on this, but I'm wondering in terms of um, working life of the average Joe and Joanne, Suzanne, like what do you see as the, the problems of like how, how work time is organised now? Yeah, really interesting question. And I think, I think we actually have to go out to a lot of different sectors and ask them. And I think the one you picked up on, with the cleaners um, and the United Workers Union members is actually a really good example. I was having a conversation uh, with another friend just this week. We were talking about the retirement age and how we see that continuing to go um, up because it is increasing over the next coming years. Um, and we're talking about, well, what if you do something that's actually quite physically demanding and this idea if you're working into your 70s and you're still having to do a job where you, you know, you're bending over or you're lifting heavy weights and all this sort of stuff. And it starts to get you thinking like, well, how do we actually, as our society changes, 
how do we actually keep supporting people in employment and different types of employment? Um, and, you know, it got me thinking about, the, you know, the <laughs> shorter work week and thinking, well, if it's less intensive on your body um, and it lets you work for longer, then actually maybe that's not a bad thing. Um, but I think those conversations are actually conversations we need to have with a range of different workers um, and going through. Like I know I've worked in, in probably, what, four different industries I think it's fair to say in my, in my working career um, and in hospitality, like working four days a week, uh, you know, would have been great. But you sit here and you go, well, how do you work that out when it's largely casualised and you get paid per hour that you, you work? Like you're looking at a pay cut from that perspective. Um, I worked in retail travel for quite a few years. And while we had a salary for that and you could uh, adjust that, you know, we also worked off bonus and off commission. And so it's sort of like, well, do you actually you know, again, how do you work this out? Are you just working less and earning less? Or are we actually, um, you know, starting to show that for that project to be interestingly enough, I actually worked part-time or four days a week um, for a period while I was a travel agent and it shaped up a few views of mine as to how good it can be to have a midday, a midweek day off. <laughs> um, you know, and then I worked in the public service for a while and it's, you know, in, in my experience, probably one of the easier ones to move to a four-day work week without necessarily um, having to have the, the pay question and the reduction in, in pay because your outputs are quite different in their production. You're not, you're, you're not a waitress. You're not having to be there the whole time to serve coffee. Um, and as a politician, I can guarantee you, I definitely do not work 37 to 40 hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you, Good. how would you manage it for someone? <laughs> I work far in excess of that. Um, but it, it comes this question of, well, like for someone who works in, in a job like mine where the expectation is that you're very available, how, how do you at the best of times manage having some personal downtime mm. with meeting the requirements of your job? So there's some really interesting propositions that, um, you know, I, I could wax lyrical on and I could um, hypothesise about, but I think, I think we actually have to get out and talk to different different industries and different sectors and what they're actually um, doing. And that's how we can start to bring it together. So mm. I think, you know, it goes to that point Nick was making that everyone just sort of jumps in there and looks at their own experience and goes, what's this, what's that? And there's no, there's no one solution. But I think if you can pull it back to that higher level conversation of do we actually want to have a chat about how we organise um, our, our, our work life with our, with our lived life, <laughs> with our social life, you know, we can work through we can work through the detail, but there's that threshold question there of, of you know, do we actually want to live more and work less? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, maybe let's skip ahead slightly. I want to maybe bring Amy in to ask. Like, it seems like this proposition is so filled with these all these open political questions, um, and a big one is one that comes up when you talk to workers about it all the time, which is, um, yeah, will I get paid? the same or will I get paid less? And all these trials that um, have been happening have generally been on the basis of keeping people paid the same. Um, but, you know, is that, is that politically possible in Australia? I mean, is it, is that, is that something that, that can be done? I reckon it's political, uh, politically workable in Australia because I think the whole idea of saying that working less is okay is itself so subversive that anything that flows from that must must be okay. So I think a, a lot of what we're talking about is um, the fetishization of work, um, the idea there is nothing more useful or noble you can do with your life than, than paid work. And I think we'll get to a conversation about uh, the implications of that for all the other meaningful things we do with our lives that aren't paid, which are somehow now marginalised and invisible because they're not paid. Um, but I, I also get the sense that if you even it out between 
the people who work like Suzanne works and like how some of us have worked and I know I have as well, extremely long hours for no additional pay. So I have, over the course of my career, I think I calculated I've worked something like 10 years of unpaid overtime. Oh. I'm not that old. Um, and so I feel like even if I just stopped doing that, if people like me just stopped doing that, that would immediately be a reduction in pay for the same amount of money. And then we could just even that out, um, you know, elsewhere in, elsewhere in the picture. Um, but I think there are, a couple of, there are a couple of questions in this. I mean, and it, I think it depends on what sector you're in. Um, we could have a sort of a, a frontal assault on it's time for capitalism to prove its point because I think a lot of us are on the, a bit on the edge now, a bit, bit iffy about whether capitalism's all that. Um, or you could lean right into capitalism because the evidence does seem to suggest that you actually produce more if you work more anyway. And if we keep people on the same pay while they're working less, they might go out and spend more money. So, you know, if, mm. if I'm spending my, my extra day off, you know, sipping lattes in the morning and drinking my inner city uh, red wine in the afternoon, that's surely good for the economy. So I feel like there are a couple of different angles to go to go. Um, you know, to explore around that. But I, I feel like actually the subversive question isn't about money. The subversive question is, are we willing to say working's not as much fun as we led to believe? Is anyone shocked by that question? <laughs> on the chat. Oh, well, so, some people are, Suzanne. Like, it, it was interesting yeah. in recent years there's been some, look, very well-meaning comrades who've been campaigning around a jobs guarantee as has been something there. And uh, you know, a lot of these, there have been young members that have been um, pushing this sort of stuff, obviously influenced by uh, a Labor history that talked more about um, guaranteed work, the right to work, drawing on some inspiration from the, the battles of the, the 70s into the 80s. Um, however, if you think about that time and you think about how work was structured then and how work is structured now and women's, uh, the changing way of gender involvement with um with household responsibilities and the like, like the, let's not, you know, the great miners strike, for example, one of the best things that came out of that horrible defeat while it was a fantastic struggle was the fact that it liberated a whole lot of women for the first time yes. in terms of actually seeing that they could actually not just be agents in their own class and um, be participants in their own struggle, but actually got exposed to the idea that they had every right to have something to say. They didn't have to just hide, you know, be behind their men. You know, the divorce rates went through the roof, not just because of, you know, things were tough, yeah, yeah, yeah. but they went up because people were like, well, actually, we're not really happy together anymore and I want to have my own life. Um, the, this is my point about the, you know, guaranteed work. Work is not a wonderful thing in and of itself. Yes, work is important, but really um, human interaction and having a you know a positive, you know, wonderful mm. community and society is really where we got. Arguably, the technology we've got today, actually, if it was harnessed properly, would actually be useful to actually having a better, providing a better life for, for ordinary people all around the world. At the moment, we've got this insanity, and I think we all know about it. There's either people who do not work enough hours to actually get by and live, and while they're in inspections where we've got very talented, special professionals who've, you know, all these skills in the world, they're, they're not seeing their families and their kids. Like, this is not a sane way to run a society. So I think not interested in a jobs guarantee. I'm interested, actually interested in ways to um, provide laws that can be enforced to provide people with the flexibility to actually enjoy more time and have more time to get on with 
having families, being part of a community, actually having, being, having the ability to have time to engage in politics would be a fantastic thing. Whereas at the moment, I mean, a lot of service workers I know don't have the time to engage in politics because they're more worried about when is the next, am I going to get that next shift or not? Or where are they going to be with their caring responsibilities, all that sort of stuff. Anyway, that's my little thing. Yeah, no, and I think you raised some really good points in that. In, in that, Ben, I think I think what I take, you know, if I summarise it down to one word, what you're saying there is that there should be balance. Yeah, um, and maybe that that balance has gone out of out of whack. And I think I think there is still value in working. Like I certainly get a lot of joy from my job, and I know a lot of people who do. And I know yeah. that's not the same for everyone. Um, but if you bring it back to balance it's, it's like, how do you get the value out of your work because we, we do go to work and we put a lot of time and effort into it but how do we also get value out of other aspects of our life and I think that's the really key question um and I think that's sorry Nick you go you can have the talking stick <laughs> I wasn't sure if you'd pause there and then I think the uh, the mic went weird but anyway um the bit I wanted to jump in on was like this idea that like the only work that's valuable is the stuff that we sell to capitalists right <laughs> Like a lot of people actually enjoy doing work that isn't compensated in that way, right? So like I was joking when I was giving you a bio that I'm like organizing bike polo internationally and that's a sport. It's a small sport, but it requires people doing volunteer labor. And I know heaps of people who are involved in their sporting clubs, who are involved in community organizations who do like it's actual work. Like organizing sub branches is an actual work. Organizing... Um, your community organizations, organizing a Bunnings barbecue as a fundraiser, doing this podcast, right, is actual work. But it's not, you're not selling it to someone, mm. right? You're not, like you guys have done your Patreon call and I signed up for you while I was, while you were doing it at the start. So oh, thanks, know, if you're listening, hey, you know, special mention, sign up too. But this is the sort of work that people, like what I'm interested in is giving people time to do the work that, that, that's valuable to them not necessarily just the work that someone's willing to pay them for. Because like David Graeber, who I haven't read a lot of, but feel like I should read more of, talked a lot about bullshit jobs, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that people are just doing work for work's sake, effectively. And they're doing these jobs that they don't actually enjoy. They get compensated for them and they, it helps them fund other aspects of their lives that they do enjoy, but they don't actually enjoy doing them. But people are more than willing, like capitalism is more than willing to let people get paid to do it for God knows why, right? So can we have more of the jobs that people actually want to be doing and fewer of the jobs that are just there to service some capitalist machine? Um, because then, yes, people can spend their days being productive, but productive on the things that matter to them. Mm. Yeah, I think um, that... I haven't thought about this about it this way before, but we've talked a lot on the show about um, you know Marx's idea of the reserve army of labor and how the unemployment pool is maintained to keep this kind of regime of, of discipline, work discipline, um, going. You know um, that the fact that um, there, but for the grace of God, go I. There, but for the grace of my uh, you know generous employer, go I. Um, that the the sort of the regime of um, of mutual obligations and unemployment benefits is so onerous and so degrading that it's a it's a um, a cudgel to kind of like wave behind people's heads. Um, but in the same way, I think those bullshit jobs that are like profoundly alienated kinds of labor um, that people do and get nothing out of, but they do it because they have to keep their paychecks. You could, we could think of those as part of the same, maybe like the kind of unofficial side, the unsanctioned side of the same 
disciplinary regime, you know, that uh, keeps people, you know, you have to, you have to stay on the teat of capital, you know, um, if you're going to pay your rent and put food in the fridge and whatever. All right. So you guys, uh, I think a couple of you have mentioned um, this idea of paid and unpaid labor. So maybe we should run back to that quickly and talk about the gender division of paid and unpaid labor particularly, uh, but there are all kinds of unpaid and unpaid labor. Um, you know, what do you guys think about the effects that a reduction of the working week might have on that dynamic, say in an individual household or more broadly in our communities? Yeah, look, I think about this almost 100% of the time that I'm awake. Um, and honestly, where it's such a rich buffet, where to start? Um, I think it would. So one of the big one of the big things that we're struggling with um, in Australia, and a lot of countries are. Um, interestingly, the ones that have nailed it are also the ones on the list of countries who are trialing a four day week. So I don't know; they seem to be linked. Um, is the the kind of the thing that needs to go alongside women's increased economic participation? And I want to circle back to that because I think it's a little bit bullshit. Is there has to be there has to be a, a um, an equal and opposite lever that says to men maybe look after your kids, maybe like iron your jocks. I don't know. Do you iron jocks? I don't know. But maybe do something in your house, in your society, in your community. Um, and what we can see is that um, kind of the, the 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 basic availability of that through through parental leave isn't enough. That there need to be other things happening um, in the culture and in the environment that essentially say to men, it's okay, you're not going to be um, emasculated. No one's going to think less of you. You're not going to lose your job. Um, you know, there need to be kind of compelling elements in the story. And a four-day week is a really is a really kind of um, universal way of doing that, saying, well, all of you have to work less now, actually. And so, um, you know, make a contribution or get divorced, your call, no one really cares. But that would be one way, that would be one way of doing it. Um, because the fact is the vast majority of um, unpaid care labour falls on women. And we saw with COVID that immediately happened. And so even in households where both parents were working, it was overwhelmingly the women that did the, um, or and are, are doing now, as you know, as we sit here, the looking after the kids, the making sure they're okay, uh, looking at the mental burden of looking after the health, the health of your household is is not bullshit, and that that mostly falls to to women, um, and the homeschooling stuff. All of that was falling to women. So in households where men and women are both working the same number of hours, we just immediately went back to that. So there's clearly something wrong in that. Um, and there are a whole bunch of conversations about the capacity of individual households to negotiate the the, the distribution of that labour. But part of it is just is, is, a, is a time scarcity, and then you have this kind of compounded issue of the fact that because of absence from the workplace due to having kids, men earn more, and therefore somehow their time is worth more as well, and so therefore they should be working because they can get more money for it. And all this kind of stuff that um, that kind of compounds into this. And I you know narrative that men do men do the work and women do the care, and, and therefore the women are also now responsible if they outsource that care as well. So childcare conversations at the cost of childcare become very very gendered. But when you think about what women are contributing to the community when they do that, as you, when you were talking about volunteering, Nick, I was just having a flashback to all the preschool fates I've ever organised, and going that's like hundreds of thousands of dollars that I created for my community working on 
entirely women-led unpaid committees that do nothing but organise fates. Um, like, oh, you want a sausage? I can make that happen for you on a very big scale. Um, so there's just a there's there's an inequity in the lack of recognition for the contribution that constitutes, but there's also an inequity in what, you know, the men who do actually want to make that contribution um, who are still considered kind of not the norm in that. And so one way of just very rapidly skipping to the end of that challenge would be to, to reduce everyone's presence in the sort of capitalist work environment to even up their presence in that unpaid or other work environment. Um, just normalise that for everyone could be a really important first step, I think. It's, it's amazing, Amy, to, um, you know, because my head's, my head's spinning at the moment because, um, you know, coming from same-sex relationships, uh, you know, you can still apply that because it seems, you know, in my experience, there's one partner who takes on more of the caring role at home to, to the other who still seems like we still fall into that gendered, um, that gendered dynamic, even though we're of the same gender per se. And I think there's a really, um, you know, picking up on the point where that, in moving to a four-day work week and saying work's going to be this much and we want you to focus on your personal life, it, I think it actually really drives that conversation for how do we equitably split what we do outside of work if you're in a relationship. Um, and I think it even goes to your family. When we look at when caring responsibilities, I mean, I know when I looked at my own parents, um, my mum in particular did a huge amount of caring for her parents and, and they were in Canberra, so it fell to her. Um, you know, because she was here too, but my, my dad's parents were interstate. But it, it, it's still, you know, it, it doesn't matter as a person. You have so many social connections. You have so many responsibilities. Um, and I think it goes back to this substantive question of how do we make sure we can still meet those 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 responsibilities outside of work that actually give us that social fabric that glue our community together um, and still earn a living so that we can get on with that. And it's, yeah. it's been interesting because it's predominantly fallen to women. Women have had that caring role throughout history. It's been unpaid. It's been unrecognised. Um, it's been expected to be there. It's been valued by society insofar as it's had to be done, but never beyond that. You know, and now, now we've got to this point where women have entered into the workforce for, for a number of decades now. And we're sitting here going, well... Well, how do we actually care for how do we care for society now that women are working? There's also <laughs> like we all can. Yeah, there's also like a rich tapestry of super valid, like non-traditional care things that we do with our time that are also um, really useful. So, full disclosure, I work three and a half days a week, and I work three and a half days a week because I earn so much money. I don't need to work five days a week, and I've dealt with my internalized capitalism. And I'm going, you know what? Don't need that money. You keep that. I'll keep my time. And one of the reasons I do that is so I can do things like hang out with my friends and see their new babies. So I can garden. So I can spend the fun time with my kids, not just the shitty time. Um, and so it's not just, I think we need to be really careful in this conversation, really forward in this conversation to say there are, there are joy generating forms of contribution and work which aren't paid and have value and nourish us as humans and we should be able to do that. I think you're just spot on there, Amy. Um, one of the things I might just quickly throw in, it's the structural um, component to this discussion, which I think is probably the intelligent way to um, for people to sort of look at it uh, in terms of tackling it. Because, look, there is evidence that there are more and more particularly younger men who want to take more of a role uh, in the, the family responsibilities of, of looking after the house, uh, hold duties, rearing children and the like. Um, but the simple reality is, is that our economy is not structured in a way that enables that. We, we still are um, in a situation where a lot of working people literally 
you know, it's it's really cutthroat. You literally look at how well, how much are you earning and how much are I earning, and you factor in in that sort of couple, and then you factor in, okay, he's going to look after the children and how much do they earn, like, and what's their ability if they are actually on on a more um, better pay, is their job more secure? Does their job actually have better conditions to actually facilitate care? Um, those are the reasons, many reasons, you know, the instructions are reasons why. And that's why this inquiry into a four-day week is so important because it actually opens up that discussion. I, I would like to think, and I do fundamentally believe there are a lot of men that would actually like to have more involvement. And we know that um, there is more and more of a push now for men in Australia to have uh, more um, pay parental uh, leave off to actually help with um, uh, newborns, as just as there's also finally Australia um, you know, making more and more ground on um more months off work for for um young 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 parents to have more time with children that just goes into this to like i think in a general mess of like really how important is it to to work like and who are we working for work should really be and as the old thing is like you know work to live not live to work uh and i guess you know that's that's where we're all coming from here there's an opportunity here that really good some good discussions about uh trying to hone in on the key issues and then um lobbying and pressuring those you know people thinkers and you know um people out there um to campaign for something better because um the four day week the four day weeks the well the five day weeks not working um i might end though just really quickly i love this quote and i've been sitting here on it for the last couple of days right is that one in the the discussion paper um which really, I think, really casts a really positive idea as to um, why do we want to fight for the, why do we want the eight-hour working day? And it's, we'll look at it later on, but I think that little para from a bunch of blokes meeting on the 6th of April in 1890 in Vauxhall really is interesting um, that this is not a new discussion, sadly, for us um, today. Um, but we'll talk about that one later on in terms of, you know, future stuff. Mm. Yeah. If I can jump in, one on the structural thing and then two on just looking at the discussion paper as well. So one on the structural thing, like workplaces have been, um, workplaces have tried to say the home life is somewhere else and the economy is seen as something separate, right? The economy is this special thing that we need to give ourselves to and so workers going into a workplace are basically told, keep your personal life out of it. Um, and that's sort of changing in some workplaces. But And so like this recognition that people have families and that they have lives outside of work that need to be considered when structuring a working day is starting to change, but it hasn't changed everywhere. There is still that idea that you keep your work at home, like you keep your home stuff at home. And the economy is separate and your workplace is separate and don't do that. Um, but the other bit that I wanted to mention when you were talking about quotes from the opening thing, looking at this, the history that they talk about in the paper, they talk about disquiet with the length of the standard working day starting in the 1860s. Yeah. So, like, that's a while ago, right? <laughs> um, and it was not until the late 1880s where workers were successful in achieving an eight-hour workday. Um, and then they go on and they sort of point out that like the current 38 hour workday that I think is in legislation in Australia wasn't until 1983. So we talk about these things, but it's like 
this is not just going to suddenly happen, right? It is going to take time. We can try and do it as quickly as possible. But, you know, this idea that somehow we don't have the power to do it is bogus mm. in my view, right? Yeah. And we'll get into how we can do it later, but yeah. Yeah, I think it goes to like how like the incredible power of capital and um, its 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 media apparatus as well to create a kind of permanent present with no past or future. This feeling that we have we have a eight hour workday, yeah, forty hour work week, like that's how it is, and that's just how it's supposed to be. And people like people have been totally robbed of their imagination of change. But even then, right, like we're moving back to these zero-hour contracts. Yeah. So the 40-hour work week came about because a bunch of people got the shits with having to turn up to a dock in the morning and not knowing whether they're going to get to work that day, right? Like you hear these stories of the people at the Rocks in Sydney who just go down and hope that maybe they would get some work. And people are like, no, this is bullshit. We need to organise and we need to actually get standard shifts. Um and now we're going back to this thing, oh, no, workers want flexibility, right? Like they want control over their hours, so we'll give them an app and that'll allow them to choose when, they, when and where they work. But in reality, it doesn't give them choice at all, right? Like you're still mm-hmm. beholden to capital. You're still beholden to like someone else deciding when it is that you, you get to work. You get an illusion of control, which is the mm-hmm. improvement, um, but the illusion's still an illusion, right? Yep. But I think, I think, Nick, that actually raises a really um, interesting point there is because we talk about this hours and it's this quantifiable amount. But we know in Australia that people work overtime. They work heaps of hours. And when you talk to, when you, you know, when you do the surveys, when the ABS puts out their data, we know that Australians, even though we normally have a work um, week that has X amount of hours, we know we're working far in excess of that. And we know there's certain industries that are working far in excess of that. So if we drive this conversation about, well, we want a four-day work week and we only want to work four days, I think that's actually driving a broader conversation. It's saying, well, how do we allocate um, the work that a person is expected to do so that they can actually still have balance in their life, which I think is a a bit of what we've actually lost. And in some respects, if we go back, you know, it sort of brings us back full circle to some of the comments I was making earlier that, you know, in the public service, because it's 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 a knowledge economy, because it's, you know, that more of that white collar work is one of the ones that's more easily adjustable. But then you've actually got to quantify, well, what are you actually allocating to people um, so that it's a realistic expectation that they can do that work in four weeks, uh, sorry, four days <laughs> rather than five days? Because um, we just got to say to everyone, you've got the same amount of work, but you've got four days to do it. We're actually going to say to them, no, no, we're going to cut the work that you're doing. And in some respects, um, you know, some of the service industries where you have really quantifiable hours and outputs, it's actually easier to do that. You know, you've got four days, you do this on your four days. Um, and it raises this, this interesting question, I think, as to how we start to implement that. But it's got that broader um, and that substantive issue there of, well, how much work are we actually expecting people to do? And this is what I mean about, like, reintegrating economy and society. Like, the economy is not separate from society. The economy is a product of society. See, I, like what we can do as a society is a product of how we structure our economy. So like the, it's all interlinked and you can't just say, oh, well, we just need to make sure that everyone's able to serve the economy. And as long as the economy is being served, everything will be okay because it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's particularly bullshit because the economy, so capitalism is set up almost inherently based on the assumption that there is someone doing unpaid labour. 
So when you talk about the integration of society and the economy, it's like, psych, already happened, which we fooled you. And that was women, right? So an eight-hour, and this is, I mean, for me, this is a fundamental thing. An eight-hour day, five days a week, isn't actually possible if you don't have someone doing the rest of your life for you. It's just it's just not like give it a, have a kid, have two kids, have a house, try to do anything else at all. And all of the things that we thought would make it easier for us turned out not to be not to be true. Um, you know, it's, I'm really, I'm extremely grateful that I don't have to hand wash my clothes and I'm very grateful that I have electricity and I, I, I very, very much love my dishwasher and my supermarket and things that make that, make that cheaper. Um, but all of the other life stuff does take a lot of time and it's not, and it's not free. And when you've got two, like I, I'm in a, I'm in a relationship with someone who, and we, we share the work, even between the two of us, if we both work full time, which we, which we did, it's actually, it's physically not enough time to do the stuff that we're supposed to do as parents and members of our community without significantly sacrificing our health, which is actually just what happened to us. We just sacrificed our health to make that happen. Or we sacrificed, you know, paying proper attention to the children that I think we have somewhere in the house. Um, and, and then the community and stuff, then, right? The community stuff goes out the window really quickly. The community as well. stuff and goes you out the window. become a totally then, atomized yeah. household. Yeah. And you feel like shit the whole time. And so you become very isolated in your household mm. as well. Um, and then you have Are You OK Day at work and someone says, just do more meditation. It's like, I'm going to punch you. Um, and then one of your kids wants to learn how to drive and that's a million hours in a car. It's just actually, it's just not possible um, because that, that initial starting point of this is how much you need to give of your labour into the economy as a good economy, as a good um, communist, no, not as a good communist, as a good capitalist, (laughs) is inherently based on this unwritten, um, you know, compact of unpaid labour. And when we when that unpaid labor started to go away because women joined the workforce, we didn't we didn't make that adjustment. And that's partly why we're in the pickle that we are now. And you know what, we like making pickles and that takes time as well. That's what I, I think, do in my spare time, kids. I make pickles. I think, um, I think Amy, it, it just brings to mind when I talk to people who join the Labor Party, like I'll speak to a lot of um, retirees who go, now I'm retired, I've got the time. I've always wanted to and now I've got the time so I'm going to get involved in the party. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, I'll talk I to people. I can't stand that type. <laughs> oh, come on. I like all Labor Party members. Um, I think, you know, I'll talk to people who are in in the prime of their working life and they're like, yep, I, I joined because it's got my values, but I don't have time to do anything. And it's it's amazing, you know, just just the, 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 um, the polar opposites that come from that. I've, I've got all the time. I've got no time. And it brings you back to this point of like, well, well, how do we actually get the time to, for you to go do things? And I think, I think you know, particularly those things that, that do come back to community. Um, and go back to that bit that we don't necessarily quantify or value in a capitalist society. But, you know, Amy, you were talking about the sausage sizzles and doing that for the school community and how you've actually raised, you know, huge amounts of sums over the years um, for those schools to actually go off and do things. And it's like, well, if someone's not providing that on a volunteer basis, it's it's not happening, but there's a huge contribution to society and to our community through through doing that and an expectation that it happens. I don't know any school that that doesn't, you know, look every year to hold a fate. Um, so it's, it's an interesting proposition of how we get that balance back, not just what is the personal benefit, but what's the social benefit to that. 
Um, you know, and I'd be interested to ask Nick, you know, what his views are because I know, you know, he's had a bit of a joke about how he's, you know, Mr. Bike Polo International and does these other things. But, you know, I know he's also out there with the SES all the time and doing all these things. And it's like, well, well, mate, you know, from your life experience as someone who's pretty active in a range of different, you know, community organisations and giving back to your community, you know, what would a four-day work week mean for you? See, this is where I'm like, I would probably keep filling it up. Um, with more and more things, right? Like this is, I actually. So you want a three-day work week? <laughs> I enjoy like contributing, right? Like I actually enjoy giving of myself to others to like to try and help others live a good life, or even just to to be a part of society. To like, hey, look, let's organize something. Let's have some fun. Let's you know get a bunch of people from different cities down the south coast to play a stupid sport, or you know, getting out on a truck with a few other other volunteers to you know clean gutters or chop trees off roads like off roads that have fallen down right like i enjoy being useful yeah and it's not just being paid for it like the being paid for it is what means that i can feed myself and look after people and like well mostly that i can feed myself right um keep a roof over my head pay the bills pay for internet, buy, you know, entertainment things and all that sort of stuff. But it's not, I'm not doing things in life in order to have that stuff. But it feels like the more that we focus on having employment and being like workers um, for wages, it just becomes this whole thing of, you know, I've got to acquire things I've got to, you know, I've got to have the most, like the prettiest house or the most streaming services or like the fanciest meals or something like that. And you end up with this competition for consumables, right? Everyone sees these advanced economies as being consumer economies and that's effectively all they're doing, right? We're, what are we making? We're not making anything. We're buying stuff that other people have made and that's what keeps our economies going. But that's not, is that a life? Like, is that a satisfying life for people? And I think, and this is why I was starting to interject to you, Suzanne, was that <laughs> I think a lot of employers are realizing that people want more in life. And so they're trying to set up these wellness schemes or well-being mm. schemes or like diversity networks because people, they realize people want to have political engagement, but they need it to be political engagement in a safe way within the confines of work. And all of that stuff, there's always a question mark over it is, is this part of your paid time or is this something you do in addition to your paid time, right? So I was being told about a, a women's network at one employer and um, a person that I know actually asked, are we participating in this women's network on paid time? And the people that were organising it found that quite a confrontational question. They're like, look, because we're trying to improve, like, women in the workplace, like, women's position in the workplace but this is actual work right so we should this we shouldn't be expected to do our jobs as well as this network because this network is benefiting the organization so the organization should pay us to be here we shouldn't have to find time outside of our work day to do this for work and so it, it's funny watching how employers try and grapple with this question of people wanting more to their lives than just doing a job um, and how difficult they find it to give people that space um, and be willing to pay for it because they expect to get a product when they pay you, right? You're, you're going to deliver me my work product. This is a nice to have, 
over here that does benefit in us in non-material ways, but we actually need the material benefit. So you've got to prioritize the material benefit first. Thanks, KPI. Yep. Um, we're going to move on uh, to, we're going to transition to talking about implementation now, I think. But before we do that, I thought I might just wrap this discussion uh, with a great quote that's in the um, committee's discussion paper. It's a quote from ANU Economist. Uh, oh, I haven't written his name down. He's an ANU Economist and he's responding to the idea of a four-day work week. And he says, for heaven's sake, we need six-day work weeks to make up for lost time. Uh, it's a wild thing to say. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that guy's getting everything he can out of his job. That's great. <laughs> Thanks for your uh, contribution. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I think also the quotes also in terms of, I mean, it's obviously going with a bit of a neoliberal sort of assumptions that, you know, the... Um, the, the way forward is just a continuation of the way it was. Um, and we know, and that's something for other shows, um, but the way of doing things in the past, we can no longer do. So without further ado, we're going to get in the next bit of the conversation, um, you know, and we've, we've touched on a few things, but um, one of the arguments, there are plenty of arguments as to why um, that are put up, there are questions that are put up as to why it not being realistic, what are the pros uh, for a four-day week and what would it mean for society? And I know we've generally talked about some of those great ideas, but we know from a number of studies mentioned in the discussion paper, and we'll, um, we'll put up a link to that one as well as um, some various other things we've been reading about it, there is um, broader flow and effects to the local economy for tourism, for recreation, uh, and the like, and also that Professor Torkey's response too, I think, was actually partly in a context of reacting to Jacinda Ardern's uh, advocacy of a four-day week, uh, although very um, minimal uh, and centrist, uh, well, it was actually um, maybe saying, well, maybe we should look at it, was um, pretty much her stuff, and his, his quote was a, a reaction to that idea. Uh, that was being talked about in New Zealand, but um, there you go. So one thing that um, right. I think is worth noting, and this is a really good argument in favour of four-day work week with no reduction in pay, is that you create a situation where people have suddenly got all this time to spend all of the money that they're making, you know, um, and that's, you know, immediately good. That's going to be high street trade or it's going to be, you know, maybe tourism. But the important thing is that it's wages being recycled directly back into the economy and not being hoarded to you know, um, create more capital or whatever. Um, so uh, that's a really good thing. Um, and then, yeah, the other thing, the other question I thought I might put to you guys is more around implementation as well. Is um, when you know when do when do we want a day off? You know, is it three day weekend? Is it a day in the middle of the week to sort of recharge and then go again for two days before the weekend? What do you guys see as like ideal implementation? I have many views mm. and I reckon people should just do what works for them. So like, and, and it, it, this is a really important conversation because I think a lot of people go, oh, well, does that mean that we don't have Sunday trading or blah, blah, blah. My, my ideal is um, everything's open 24 hours a day with, and you, you only work 30 hours across the week and you just figure it out for yourself. And you might want to bank that as having three days in a row. You might want, what I personally prefer is that really beautiful two days on, one day off, two days on, two days off. It's like, it's like yes, a little kind of I've discovered that I actually need to sleep in every second day and so that works really well for me. Um, but I, like, I think part of the utility, and so we're talking about benefit, I think part of the benefit comes from actually everyone working a different cycle of what those hours are like. 
so that you can do like the the life admin is one of the things that doesn't get done right when you work um 40 hours a week because everything's shut so if that if if you use some of that extra time to do your life admin you need some of the administration to be open in order for that to happen or you haven't actually solved that problem mm. so you probably want to be able to go to the doctor on that day you probably want to be able to go to bunnings on that day um you, and you know and then you get a muffin or something i don't know um so that's that's me personally but i think if what we're trying to do is give people control back into their lives in ways that work for them I would actually be as hands-off as possible um, and prime the economy as much as possible to accept interaction with it as often as possible. I reckon that's, that's, a, that's what I would do. I reckon that's a really good point about how the economy could actually benefit from this and expand almost. Um, and I know certainly from my own experience when I was working four days a week, I had Wednesdays off, so I worked Monday, Tuesday, had Wednesdays off, worked Thursday, Friday, then had the weekend and I could just load all my life admin up onto that Wednesday. And it was it was amazing. I didn't expect or anticipate to have that, but it was great because, you know, you could go off and do all these things that actually weren't available to you on the weekend, like paying bills and, doing, you know, going to places that wouldn't otherwise be open. In. Um, and it left you with your weekend completely free just for social time. And it was okay to do that. Um, and I think there's a really, you know, when I talk to people now, they're like, oh, I've got no time to do this. And, and certainly when I was in the public service, the amount of people who would run off because you had a bit of flexibility, you could flex on or flex off, you take a little bit of extra lunch time to be like, oh, I've just got to go to the post office or I've just got to go sort this out here and there. And it's like, how do we actually make time for those when our economy is still structured around a Monday to Friday, nine to five, particularly for service provision? And there's a really interesting proposition there as to how society could become more flexible if we also made our work pattern more flexible um, and what that would, would enable. And I think um, the other experience I draw from too is, is I lived in Norway for a little bit and um, uh, in Norway everything's open from, uh, you know, sort of 8 till 10 every day. So, you know, and the idea being that that you can go off and do your life admin, that you can get access to these things outside of the standard work hours, um, except on Sunday where everything closes because they're a really good um, Lutheran community where you don't work on a Sunday. And all the foreigners who moved to Norway um, at the same time I did when we first got there, this idea of having everything, like literally everything except maybe the petrol station closed on a Sunday it was just so foreign to us. And we sit, sat there and we moaned about it. We're like, oh, my gosh, how do you even survive? How do you do this? Because, you know, what if I need to go get eggs? How do I get eggs? You know, every the supermarket sh- shut on a Saturday. How do I deal with this? Um, and we just had a little breakdown for a few months. And then we realised it's okay. You just have a look in your fridge on Saturday uh, and you figure out if you've got eggs or not. And you go get them on a Saturday before the supermarket closes. And then you've got this whole one day where you don't have to do anything except relax and enjoy yourself. And it was like this this free pass to go out, to organise things with your friends, to, to, you know, to sit on the couch and watch TV if that's what you wanted to do. It was just this complete day where it's like all I have to do is nothing. It's literally all I have to do. Um, and so, you know, we'd sit here and we go, and by the time I left Norway and I came back to Australia, I got back and people were like, we'll do that on Sunday and I'm like oh no we can't do anything on Sunday Sunday's been doing nothing and I've become so accustomed to this idea of having a day off that it was it was actually foreign again to have this idea that you could do something and you know the, the point being is how do we actually get to a point where as a community and as a society we can go it's okay just to have a day of relaxation I think that goes as well to just how people adjust pretty quickly how long how long did you say it was before you realized that Sundays were for nothing 
Oh, like a couple of months. Like I was yeah. in Norway, Norway for a year of my, I did an exchange um, when I was studying at university. So I was there for a year and, um, you know, it was a couple of months in and it's like, oh, you know, like I'm literally joking, like every, every foreigner, every exchange student I spoke to had a breakdown in this idea of Sunday. Like we really had no idea, you know, and on public holidays, things would be shut, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, how are we going to cope? Like how, you know, how are we going to do any of this? I was like, you adjust and you you're wrong with it. And, and it worked too because, you know, the shopping hours were extended on other days. So it was like, if I need to go to the supermarket, I can get there late on a Thursday night after classes or after work. You know, it's fine. It's available. Um, mm. And it's not that hard to, to plan ahead and go, I'm just going to check what's in my fridge on a Saturday to make sure I'm not going hungry on a Sunday. <laughs> it <laughs> so proves that people there. are much more much more culturally flexible than yeah. what a, yeah. an economist who views you as a sort of homo economicus assumes when they yeah. view you as a kind of a, a catalogue of preferences. Um, really, people people can shift and and uh, and jive. The, the oh, person. they really can, yeah. Actually, what you're saying, Suzanne, though, is actually it's like what Jacob said before. People forget about the past and even the recent past. Um, it wasn't that long ago. Shops in Australia um, shut at 12 noon on a Saturday. Um, you know, this this isn't, you know, the, the, all the arguments they put up there, oh, no, we can't possibly do this because we need to be open um, 24 hours uh, a day, seven days a week. And this idea that, um, you know, what some some people get to enjoy that, that flexibility and others don't is like, well, we can actually change things so that we can maybe look at the past like that or experiences from overseas like that, having a day shut down. So I do remember as a child having, you know, Saturdays at 12 noon, all the, all the big shots were closed, you know, that's it. Yeah. And you just work it out beforehand and it's, 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 you know, and it is interesting. I remember, um, you know, and it's like and it's, it's globalization that partly drives part of this is we have to have mm. standardized stuff. Yep. Um, and, you know, and even even Norway, like I was in Norway in 2006 and seven. like even Norway's changing and I've gone back since and it's, you know, more stuff's open on Sunday now. It's not just the petrol station. I'll have some other stores and these sorts of things. And the conversations turn to, oh, you know, is this actually a good thing? And, and you know, there's the two sides of it. One, we don't have that rest time and, you know, but we've got all this access to other stuff. And, you know, that's that's the discussion, I guess, for, for Norway to have. I don't live there anymore, so it's not for me to impose my view on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also remember, too, like, you know, I, I, worked in, um, I worked in a Spanish restaurant for a long um, period of time when I was studying and when I was much younger than I am now because I'm, I'm terribly old these days. Um, and, you know, my, one of the bosses was Spanish. That's, that's how he came to sort of bring this lovely cuisine to Canberra. Um, and he used to sit there and talk about how the EU was ruining the Spanish way of life because um, because all the people who didn't have siestas were forcing Spaniards to work during their siesta time. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, it, but, you know, we sort of, we laugh, but there's actually that cultural thing, like, you know, in trying to standardise the work week and trying to make it all uniform, we're, we're actually killing off our culture mm. um, and things that have become quite important. And, and you sit back and you go, well, how do we get that balance back? How do we actually start saying, no, no, it's okay to live as well as to work and it's you know it is acceptable you know if you want to have a nap in the afternoon if that works for you then have a nap in the afternoon um if you still get all your work done i don't care <laughs> i do want to just jump quickly on that point that um ben said and i think you, you referenced a little bit Suze, which is sort of that reference to the past i want to be super clear that that worked in the past because women did a bunch of unpaid labor Mm. in order yeah. to make sure grocery shopping happened and that they spent all of their weeks, their weekdays making sure that worked and so that the weekend could be could be the family. That just fundamentally doesn't work unless there are other adjustments. And so either you have to do what uh, Suze was talking about in terms of having shops later open at night 
um, so that you can do that kind of stuff after your work. And that's that's my preference from different countries that I've lived in. Um, or you work less during the week so that you can do that. So I have, so Switzerland has a very similar situation where things are closed um, on Sunday, but that is based on the idea, Switzerland's quite a misogynist country, that everyone has a wife. And so all of my single friends who don't have wives and who work in humanitarian organisations at the UN and who work like 12 hours a day run out of toilet paper on the weekend and have to go to someone else's house. So, you know, there is, we do have to understand who's doing what in an Mm. environment while we're having that conversation and so again we come back to this miracle pill of the four-day week really helps ease that doesn't it tick 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 so the thing i wanted to i guess say on this was um i guess like the things that you're talking about in terms of norway being shut on a on a Sunday or siesta time in Spain is that there were ways that societies had come to construct their weeks. Um, And as different ways of constructing weeks had collided, certain ones took precedence over others. And like putting aside the the gender side of why those weeks were constructed the way that they were, because I I think Amy makes a very important point there. Like the, the thing you were saying about Spain, where it's like EU's ruining their siesta time. It's like, why is the EU's lack of siesta suddenly having to like dominate over um, Spain? Right? Like, why did the Spanish have to give up their siesta time just because the rest of the Europe doesn't have it? Um, and so this just brings me back to the point of ultimately it's about worker power, right? So the way that this four-day work week will work is if workers have power over their work. Um, because one of the risks that I see with like a 24 hour open economy is that there's going to be an underclass of workers mm-hmm. who have to work 20 of those 24 hours, right? Um, or get pushed to be the ones that don't get a say, right? They don't get to choose their shifts. They just get told you'll turn up here and you'll finish then. And they facilitate life for those of us that are in a more privileged position to be able to choose our hours. So yeah, some of us will get two days off um, and then well, two days work, one day off, two days on again, but others will be the ones that are there at the stores or are there at the cafes or mm. there in the other service sectors who aren't able to do that. And so what I'm interested in is making sure that if we shift to a four-day work week, that they benefit from it as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, it takes me back to the times um, when I worked in hospitality because I was in hospitality for over a decade. Um, and then when I worked in so, retail... Yeah. Um, and I actually really loved, I actually really loved working in hospitality and wanted to stay, but there's, there's, um, Jacob, I think you might maybe empathize with this, but there's not a lot of career opportunity and it also, like it stuffed my back. Hey, mm. <laughs> like, there's a limit to what your body can take. Um, but I think I also worked in retail travel and there, there were weekend works. Like when I started in the public service, right, I had I had two full days on the weekend. I didn't know what to do with myself. So I had a chat to my friend and started working at their restaurant on Saturday nights because I, I suddenly didn't know what to do with this weekend that I had because I'd always worked on weekends, which is fine. But, you know, it, it sort of brings you back to penalty rates, which is also a bit of an active discussion in, in that we, we give penalty rates for working unsociable hours. But in hospitality, those penalty rates were Saturdays and Sundays. So they were unsociable for people who worked Monday to Friday. Um, but for someone who's working in a seven-day week, it, it's actually pretty 
different. And and the part that I always got really frustrated was was we'd be rostered on to work Fridays. It was like, like expected. You work Friday, Saturday nights. Like they're the business nights, all hands on deck. And you got paid a penalty on Saturday. That's great. But you got no additional pay on a, on a Friday. And like you work your butt off those two nights because they're, they're the busiest nights of any hospitality. Well, they, you, you know, usually the busiest night of any hospitality outlet. You know, whereas it got to Sunday and we'd all be clamoring to get the Sunday shift because everyone's been out on Friday, Saturday night. They're not coming out on Sunday, but you got paid double time and a half. So it was almost like, all right, if I'm going to work Friday, I'm going to work Saturday. Give me the Sunday shift too, because this is how I essentially get the penalty rate for working my butt off these other nights. So how do you actually get back to having fair compensation for the hours you're working outside of this lens of what works for a Monday to Friday, nine to five? And like proposition. When I was working in market research um, and bargaining in that, people were actually willing to give up their penalty rates because their employer wouldn't schedule them for shifts when the penalty rates applied. And so like, they were like, well, I want to work more hours and I would rather work on the weekends, so I'm happy to give up my penalty rates so that I can work when I want to work. And they didn't necessarily care about the structural reasons why penalty rates existed and what that meant for other sectors of the economy if one sector... Like if market research starts to give up their penalty rates, what does that mean for other like industries that have penalty rates? Um, they didn't give a shit, right? They just wanted to be able to work when they when it suited them and they wanted to be able to do as many hours as they possibly could. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's it, it does feel like there's an element of solidarity building across industries that we need to do for this um, because there's no point in me as a public servant getting a four-day work week if it's at the expense of someone else. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that maybe raises this question of how, what, by, through what mechanism would it be implemented? Um, we could talk about it being implemented at an, at an enterprise level, at an industry level, or a sector level, or a national level, you know, or maybe um, the case of like individual state or territory jurisdictions, although I could, couldn't really see that being workable on an like a ad hoc basis. But um, yeah, if it's going to be done through um, the national the, the national wage agreement, you know, system, it's not necessarily going to involve a lot of union solidarity building because the system is kind of designed to, you know, function with a few top level kind of representatives from unions, but but generally it's um, it's kind of legislators, public servants kind of making the, and, and lawyers making these decisions. And while there's a role for um, a lot of kind of lobbying um, uh, to be done by trade union members it, it doesn't really to me it doesn't light a fire under union members to get get together and start organizing across unions and across sectors and to start really building meaningful solidarity i was gonna say Jacob, i kind of want to push back on that though because because the example you gave was when you were having a, a meeting with members of your own union mm-hmm. united workers union and everyone actually started going hey this is great we want to talk about it sure and you know if you you know unions are their members that's that's why they exist is, is for their membership so I was like, well, if enough members are jumping up and down saying we want to do this, surely much like how we got the eight-hour workday, <laughs> mm. you know, surely we start to drive that change. Yeah, and I think it's still possible to drive the change um, to, to get that, that outcome. Um, but as a secondary um, desirable goal, I think, like, it, it doesn't quite meet my kind of criteria for really pushing um, horizontal organising as much. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was, Maybe just back to that question of casual labour, and I think that it's maybe it is a sort of tick in the column of the the national wage bargaining kind of regime that we have. Um, is that we the way that casual wages in Australia are determined now is that they're they're an an hour's proportion of the working week, 
And so um, we kind of have this nice little mechanism, I think, where you shorten the working week uh, by a day without reduction in pay. Uh, and then you, you could just um, kind of go to your Excel spreadsheet and do a kind of macro to change, change everything. So it's like all the casual work, the wages remain a proportion of the working week. And so uh, my hourly pay rate goes up because my hour of pay remains a proportion of the working week, which just happens to be four days, but it's the same amount of pay. So through doing it in a, a kind of slightly clever way like this, um, it's possible to also achieve a, a pay rise for casual workers that is commensurate to the reduction in working hours for full-time workers. Yeah, I think um, I think in raising that, Jackie, actually, when you talk about implementation, you ask um, like you raise one of the harder aspects of it mm. um, is is that while it's possible, and I think this is particularly true probably of the knowledge economies, it, it's possible to say you know if you're going by outputs and, and the hours are not necessarily tied to to being present for a particular point of time, you, you can do it. But when you look more at the service industries like your hospitality, but even your nurses and your teachers. You know, and in the trials that we've seen around the world, there is an acknowledgement there that that means you're going to need to employ more people to cover the hours that are no longer being worked, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing in that the employment it's creating, but it does raise a lot of questions. And and it also raises a front of pushback, I think, for, for employers saying, well, how do we actually absorb this cost? Um and we've seen, you know, we've seen some of the trials around the world. And I think that the Uteburg trial in Sweden was actually a really good example because they, they based it around nurses and they said you know we're going to have nurses working less hours um but we're still going to pay them the same uh, and that cost was absorbed by the by the um Uteberg city council they they provided the extra funding for the wages um and when you read through their experience while it came with an extra cost when they actually started looking at things that aren't necessarily as easy to quantify but actually have a huge value such as product you know productivity happiness on the job engagement with patients um and all these sorts of things that actually went, well, it, it didn't actually end up costing us anything extra because all those things that we'd like to see our employees doing that actually make for a good job and a good environment for our service industry, we're seeing that really develop and come to the fore. So I think there's a really, um, I think there's a really interesting conversation to have there as to how we deal with these two different types of work. One that's really based around our outputs and one that's based around, you know, being present and working a certain amount where you have to do it mm. in any given time. And that's actually one of the really big challenges, I think, in, in pushing forward this idea of a four-day work week that we really need to get in and explore and find a way through. I've got an excellent point there from Suzanne. And I, th- I think one thing that what's becoming very clear to me is, is th- I see the four-day week as just part of a, uh, a bigger strategy for transforming more of a way that working people have more control of their lives and bringing in a, f- a four day week is part of that. And uh, if we can do it in a way that people aren't going to lose pay, um, that's really, you know, a, a key part of that, but that we then get into more, uh, it then I think uniquely just moves, not uniquely, it moves into discussion about a living income for all that people should have enough to, to, to live on. Uh, and that, really does cover off that, um, you know, the general inequality that we have about too many hours or not enough. Uh, and the last thing I want to say, though, I think we are moving in the direction with this thing is like, how are we going to go about camp- um, campaigning for this and the rest of it? It's really about, I think it's about politics and it's about um, changing what the state and how state institutions are actually going to enact this. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be an enterprise agreement. And I'm not at all surprised if people find there's pushback from union um, bureaucrats 
um, simply because they don't necessarily understand that space in terms of, you know, whether or not I perceiving it as a threat because they, they, they might feel that they don't control the space, maybe. I don't know. There's lots of reasons why there's that hesitancy. But I also think I think of the eight-hour day movement as much as the labor movement likes talking about that wonderful legacy um, over 100 odd years ago, particularly in Australia, 1856, the stonemasons who got the first eight-hour day in, in the world. Fantastic. Um, this was at a time at the really the emergence of the first serious trade unions in the, in the world. We've got a situation now where unions unionism is probably the weakest it's been since the great defeats in uh, of, 18, of the 1890s struggles. Um, we're not going to win this as an industrial campaign. It's an area that is going to require politics and big ideas. Yes, talking and organising and doing things with union members, but there's, you know, if we were just going to appeal to the average, you know, unimaginative union bureaucrat, which in my experience is a lot of them, um, they're not interested in this. They've got their own different game going on. Um, they're not going to see this as a transformative agenda for them when they're very much thinking in terms of, how do I make sure we keep an office? Have we got enough members that are going to continue to get my pay? Um, being a bit negative about that, but <laughs> I think that's, you know, their angle materially is not where a lot of the general working people are, which is like, hey, maybe we could have a better way to organise our working lives. They're yeah, hey, hey, Benny, and I think, I think you know, power to you. Um, you know, just to counter a bit of your negativity because I, like I like to be a glass half full kind of person. <laughs> 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 hey, I lived that world for a long time. I know what they're like. So, you know. I, I know, I know. Yeah. Full disclosure, Benny was my union organizer when I was a delegate in the workplace. <laughs> so we go way back. Um, I think, I think, but you know, taking a bit of a glass half full, you know, you said it yourself, this is a transformative project. Like it's, it's an idea as a concept, it's got huge consequences. And I think it, it you know, it's gonna take all hands on deck. And I think the union movement's a part of that. Um I think, you know, like a lot of different parts of our society are all parts of it too. And the more we bring in, the more we get that transformative um, experience. And, and, that's, and that's the way we achieve this. You're not going to achieve something like this um, by convincing a couple of people. You, you know, if you're going to make a big social step change like this, you've got to convince just about everyone, hey, mate. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, on I'm that. just saying, don't, don't go run to the union official. Like, <laughs> that's, they don't have a magic wand as much as some of them like to think they do. No, but I, th I think they've got their part to play. I think oh, of course, got their part to play. of course. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like if we're going to have a strategy about how to go forward with this, it's not drawing up a resolution to, you know, unions ACT to go and do blah. That is a complete waste of our everyone's time. Yeah. Nick, you were going to say something. Well, <laughs> so um, the thing that I was going to like just cutting in on at the end there was um, like we've gotten in the situation we're in because workers have believed they've had to give up extra time so like we end up with this culture of doing unpaid overtime because people believe that they have to and so they think the way that I get ahead and the way that I get what I want is I have to do all of these unpaid hours and that's internalized right that's not it's a culture that's developed in a workplace um, you've got bosses who are like, well, I had to do it, therefore you have to do it. And they start to believe that themselves. And getting people out of that mindset is part of the project. Um, I said before, you know, it doesn't matter if a public servant gets a four-day work week if it comes at the expense of others. But, like, we've actually seen historically that sometimes single industries winning certain conditions can start to make changes. Absolutely. But I think the important thing in this is, like, there's the power analysis that we need to do. 
So where are the industries where winning more power over your working hours would have the biggest impact on changing that dynamic, right? changing this idea that you need to work a bajillion hours to be a worthwhile person in society? Like, how do we change that mindset? And doing that analysis, I think, is how we come up with a strategy. I don't think I can, like, you can't set a strategy and then do the power analysis. You've got to do the power analysis first and then go, okay, well, where are our levers? What have we got to play with? How do we make the change? Um, and so, yes, like me being involved in the Labor Party and passing motions is a part of that um, trying to change people's conversation in their own head, right? Yep. So starting people along this path of believing that we could do something differently um, because I want to try and convince people that, like, this is a path that they want to go on um, and that if they want to go on it, that they need to be an advocate for it and find those people that are wanting to be advocates for it and then empower them and build that movement. And that's where I'm interested in sort of playing a role. Um, how that goes, we'll see. I think the other thing that goes with that, Nick, is is the power of expectation. Hmm. Um, and, and I get the sense with this, um, with this kind of reform that it wouldn't take much to reset that expectation and then for people to go, mm, I can see what's happening over there. Why am I still, why is this still my life? And I feel like now is a very useful time for us to be doing that because, I like, I honestly, I've never seen as many, like, middle-aged white women going, I don't think capitalism works as I have like since COVID started like let's take on let's build on that shall we let's 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 take a beat to just unpack why we think capitalism might not be working for us um and I think what we've seen is it's it's actually fundamentally cooked um and I don't I I get the sense that if we can say hey it's not um it's not a fanciful unimplementable um uh you know pie in the sky whatever other cliche there is for things, you know, quixotic um, thing that we're talking about. It, it's it's time for us to restructure because we're because we're we're modern um, humans living in a modern society and a modern economy and we can see this isn't working. And because we're smart people, we can change that for ourselves. And so I don't think my sense is that it won't change for everyone all at the same time, but that if we can normalize it for enough people, and like honestly, just mums, just get mums to say four day week seems like a really quick way to get there. Um, I reckon that would help. So that that is not a union campaign, that is not the socialist campaign that most of us would be here for. But I think other, like the flip side of that, and and for my own self, walking through my own process of deciding to reject a, a full time career uh, or a full time role, was partly so I could do more activism. It was partly because I was dropping my kid off at climate protests on Fridays and thinking I can't wait till I'm retired to be part of the change that is necessary for us not to be dead by the time. I'm retired. And so I, I I specifically wanted to free up more time in my life to, to make to make change. And so I think that's another um, quite powerful thing. But it, it sounds really banal and boring, but I think the power of expectation and normalisation is, is actually quite high. And in a town like Canberra, super high. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. Um, that's a really good segue, I think, to the next, uh, next point um, on the uh, sort of question of expectations and the changing of... Um, how how people think about the structures that they they live inside of. So, the discussion paper um, put put out by the committee notes 
um, a couple of times that while detractors of reduced working hours claim that now is not the time to make fundamental changes to the way we work, um, maybe a more realistic view would say, look, COVID has changed the way we work um, and the, the way that we think about work, um, whether we like it or not, really. Um, the COVID crisis has completely shaken the received wisdom about productivity, time at the office and free time. So um, how do you fit this idea with the idea of a four-day work week? Um, sorry, how do you fit the idea of the four-day work week into the paradigm of the COVID recovery or um, the sort of post-COVID world? Where, where, where does it fit into that? I think there's a really, I think there's a really good opportunity and the time has never been better to have the discussion. And we've seen a lot of these trials around the world like the Iceland trial was far before COVID. <laughs> like these things, the Jutaberg trial was far before COVID. Like these, these mm. things were happening before COVID had become a thing. But the, you know, the, the steps we've had to take over the last, you know, 18 months or so have, have meant that I think we're really open for questioning uh, and our minds are open to questioning, hey, what is what does a standard work week actually look like? Um, and I reckon that's where we're just sort of actually quite ripe for the discussion. You know, and it might be that, that we sit down and we go, actually, no, we don't want the four-day work week. You know, we actually, we, we want to have work from home every day or we want to do this or we want to do that. And I think, I think you know, we're not going to get those answers if we don't even pose the questions and have the conversation. So I reckon, um, you know, if we're talking about COVID and if we're talking about what we can do through a COVID recovery, you know, we need to start with what is it we actually want to achieve. And I think, like, the COVID environment has, well, certainly for certain work sectors, has given people more of an understanding of, hey, actually, this is how I would like to structure my day. So there have been an increase in the number of people who've wanted to do some time working from home. Like, they may have only reduced to, like, two days a week, but, like, a Monday and a Friday has meant that they've then got a bit more flexibility in terms of how they structure their day to split up their life admin and their work life, right? Whereas other people are just like, no, 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 I need to be in the office. Like this is like the way that I work is better in the office. And I think people being able to engage with how they prefer to work helps you build a conversation about, well, okay, so why don't you ask for that? If that's how you like to work, why do you accept a job that doesn't let you work that way? And then that from there is a conversation as to, well, how about we ask for a four-day work week? I think I think that's absolutely true, um, Nick. And so I have two I have two sort of two somewhat unrelated thoughts around that. Um, I think the flexibility, like so, and Sue's you've raised this as well. COVID just showed us that actually we could do things differently, mm. right? Yeah. But also one of the things that's going to come out of COVID is like, what the hell is long COVID going to look like? And so are we moving into an environment where we're actually going to have to start um, treating people with disability and people with long-term chronic health illnesses properly and with respect and, and creating work environments that are accessible to them? And that means flexible work environments where it's okay to not work a gajillion hours a week. You could just work a bajillion instead and that would be fine as well. And if we're dealing with a fairly significant um, kind of health uh, impact because of 
COVID, then we're going to have to make those those sorts of um, changes, and we should have done them anyway. But I think now what we can now what we can see is yeah, that's fine. And like, and I'll I'll confess, it turns out I hate driving. I just, I really hate it, and if I fall. I'm afraid I'm going to fall asleep and die. And I don't have to do that now because I work from home. Um, but the other thing that kind of connects to that, and and I think we'll, we might segue this into a bit of a kind of climate or environmental resilience discussion, is during right at the beginning of COVID we got solar panels on our house uh and because I've been working from home since then I put my washing machine I only use my major appliances during the day because it's free um and if I as soon as it gets dark if I use my dishwasher my power bill for the month just jacks right up and so I can in I can between calls put on a load of washing and then in my lunch break hang it out I could never do that before I could we could only ever do washing on the in, on the weekends in winter, at least, because there was no sunlight to hang anything out um, when we were when we were away from from our house. So even just the opportunistic use of the solar power that I now have access to, and then pivoting little five minute breaks into my day. And when I say me, it's not just me; it's my partner and the kids as well. Um, to say, hey, sun is out, put on a load of washing, or sun is out, turn on dishwasher. The flexibility to take advantage of that because I'm not because I've broken this construct that my productivity is at a desk owned by my boss as opposed to, you know, on a computer owned by my boss on my desk in my house, um, is has actually fairly significantly changed how we do um, just household shit because we don't cram it into, into sort of, you know, a weekend um, and we are getting better environmental value out of our um, out of our solar panels, which is a really super wanky thing to say. A less super wanky thing to say is big into gardening. And in Canberra, you've got to water those shits and you've got to do it <laughs> at the right time of day. And so now because we're home, we can water and harvest and do what we need to do across a day instead of trying to cram it in at the beginning or the end of a day. And anyone who's like mad keen into gardening understands that there's a time for these things. And so it's just made that connection to our own food cycle, our own kind of being in our own environment and taking advantage of a broader range of resources more available to us um, and also which is kind of better for everyone's mental health. I personally love the idea that I now work somewhere where I can open the goddamn window. Like what a revelation that was, a breeze. Yeah, and not to have to sit under fluorescent lights, you know. Ranting now about window opening, but I think it's very underrated. I must say when I, when I left hospitality and joined the public service, I was just excited to work in a place that had air conditioning because um, there's nothing quite like being a, a waitress in 40-degree heat in Canberra. <laughs> so. Yeah, and that, I mean, let's not get distracted by the working from home conversation, which is a marginally different one. Yeah. We do need <laughs> to acknowledge right. that climate control is actually something that our workplaces provide for us, um, mm. and people, not everyone has access to that in their house. So I'll, I'll shut up now so we can talk about four-day weeks <laughs> for working from home. <laughs> Apologies. But there, there is an interesting question, like because like we, we've talked about the the impacts on um, you know society and the community and how we can reorder a whole heap of things and you know there'll be more time for activism and more time for community participation, more time for sausage sizzles for schools, all these sorts of things. But you know it does raise this question of well we're living in a climate emergency. What's actually the impact of a four day work week for the environment? Mm. Um, mm. And it's it's a really I think a really important question to be asking as part of the bigger bigger broader discussion. Okay, well, don't preempt our next subject. Uh, I'll just move <laughs> us along right now. 
Um, <laughs> Is Amy was just speaking. Amy was just speaking about solar panels so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, well, let's move on to that then. Um, I'll just start with a little bit of um, framing, a little bit more sort of historical context, if you like. Um, human-induced climate change didn't start happening because of some deep flaw in the human character or because of neoliberalism or because people decided it was easier to drink through a plastic straw. Anthropogenic carbon emissions are intimately linked to the historical ramping up of industrial commodity production and distribution. In other words, it's the result of how we make things, how we grow things, and how we move things around. Um, and for that reason, I think it's really intuitive to think about how one of the one part of the solution to addressing the climate crisis would be reorganizing the way that we work. So the first question is, uh, what is your ideal carbon neutral three day weekend? Anyone jump in? Anyone jump in? <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question, Jacob. That's a huge Aren't we question. living that right now, actually, in Canberra? <laughs> Look, I, I am a big fan of team sports and mm. team sports on bicycles. And so, <laughs> like, being able to ride a bike to hockey and play a bunch of hockey games and go play some bike polo and maybe go mountain biking for a weekend, like, all of that would be human-powered, right? That's just mm. getting enjoying the outdoors, Uh would be just fantastic. I'm just looking at you, Nick, and obviously our listeners won't, won't be able to see just how relaxed you are, man. But <laughs> <laughs> He's just imagining it. He's yeah. just lying oh, on the couch. <laughs> I've been variously right. sitting, flying, lounging. Yeah. Yep. Nah, um, and I think it's a really good um, point, though, because having that ability of, of a three-day weekend does just enable so many more outlets to that um, connection to play. Um, but also had the way in which that um, idea that a lot of play can actually be done in a way that is is carbon neutral, is, is good for the environment. And um, I, I think coupled with a four-day week, if we think about it, is being connected to the way in which we think about infrastructure and, you know, public tra transport and ways in which people can get to, to places. And, and maybe might even throw some, you know, some of those discussions about, um, you know, housing and how, you know, houses reflecting actually our environment and how accessible they are for, for people. We've, um, we've got some serious problems now with um, housing in afforded, uh, you know, in affordability uh, in Australia. Um, but I think the, the, the climate stuff, uh, those st um, studies are just amazing about 20% uh, you know, deductions in emissions. The discussion paper talks about the, the Microsoft guys in Japan somehow having a 60% drop in use of paper. Um, yes. Just dropping a day, like you know, it's like what were they doing? Friday <laughs> 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 was just printing day, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> just, yeah. Um, there's so, another thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's the uh, the UK, um, you know, four day working week campaign mm. put out this this paper um, recently on the the effect on their emissions in the UK, and like you said, they they've shown that. They've got some modelling and some meta-analysis meta that, that suggests that um, a four-day work week could, could actually reduce um, carbon emissions in country by you know, over 20%. Um, that's great. But the other thing that they, that they talk about is um, the way that, it, that the, the four-day work week frees up mental space for people to, to think more about it and care more about it, you know, sort, sort your recycling properly, go to a climate fixed, rally. Right? And, yeah. But then this, is, this is the... I'm going to interrupt you, Nick. Um, but this was this was the thing that that I put a lot of thought into, and we were kind of making this decision to jump off the teat of capitalism. 
And so two of the things that I want to spend more time was was actually cooking. And I'm like my partner and I, actually the kids as well, very good cooks. But when you're super busy, you just get that convenient shit from the supermarket. Mm-hmm. And that has, a, that has a carbon footprint. And I know I'm not responsible for a carbon footprint because I'm an individual and we should be talking to markets. But still, so when you when we talk about our, our weekend, um, it's like cooking so that we've got food to eat during the week. Um we someone donated a pasta maker to us and like seriously come around at our house when we're not in lockdown and we'll force feed you homemade pasta because that's pretty much all we do now um but the other thing is making stuff and fixing stuff takes time so either if, you, if you're going to do it yourself it takes time if you're going to get someone else to do it it the, finding that person taking it to them uh, they're not open on the weekend, blah, blah, blah. And I have to confess, I'm like the only person I know who's ever taken a TV to be fixed. Um, so I do, I like to fix things, but um, time scarcity, particularly when you're paid a lot to be time scarce, is an incentive to buy new things instead of fixing the things that you have because fixing the things that you have or, you know, MacGyvering something out of the stuff that you have to turn it into something else takes thought and time um and that's actually what i like to do with my time is repurpose random shit into other shit or recycle it properly or tinker because you can't tinker if you haven't got time i think so there's one the point that i was interrupting amy who interrupted me to interrupt (laughs) her um i wanted to make basically let's all interrupt now (laughs) yeah but i think it was the other way around <laughs> Nick speaking, next, everyone. Leave Nick alone. <laughs> the next point on top of that, like you say that it's not your fault, like buying convenience products is not your fault, but the prevalence of people wanting to buy convenience products creates the demand that then creates the products. So we now have all of these convenience products because there's so many people who are time poor, but like income rich, effectively not necessarily income rich, but there's a whole bunch of people who don't have a lot of time who can't, who don't have time to cook. So convenience all of a sudden ratchets it up. So that product exists because of the working week. Um, The other part that I wanted to say is if we're trying to flip our conversation around from just what we do in terms of servicing an economy to how to, what sort of lives do we want to live um, is about rethinking just, like how our economy is based. So this idea of an economy purely as this constant growth mechanism that just exploits resources and spits out shit. Like this is part of the point of trying to fix that. Um, And one of the reasons that I look at that so intimately is like you've got all of these kind of, and this might be a tangent, um, all of these kind of technical solutions. So people keep coming up with, oh, you know, technology and robots will make everything better for us and we won't have to work. But that hasn't happened, right? Like we've invented robots and we've invented ways of automating it, but we still expect people to work stupid amounts of hours. And in fact, we've actually, in the time between, you know, Asimov writing his third, like his three laws of robotics and like Keynes talking about how one day we'll only be working 15 hours, we've actually increased the number of hours that people work, even though we've gotten more, like technology that can actually help us do work less. And like there are parts of my job that could be automated out of existence, but we'd rather have people, we don't want to pay for that work, like converting it to a society where we could have people actually working less because machines do more. 
we don't seem to want to go that way because we're so invested in this idea of I have to work in order to be a worthwhile person. And so I think if we can start shifting the conversation back to being about, well, we're, we're working to live, we're not living to work, then maybe we can start to like use the technology that's out there that people are so excited by to actually enable us to have a 15-hour week, as you know, great economist Keynes once said. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I know we're talking about environmental benefits now, but like I'm just going to go off off topic a little bit. <laughs> and I think I think you know, we've had all these we've had all these efficiency gains through technology and I think there's a real question as to whether that benefit actually has come back to workers. Um because you know, certainly when you first when <laughs> when the workers movement first won the 8-hour workday, we certainly didn't have <laughs> we didn't have computers for starters and a whole heap of other things that allow us to do our jobs in in a much um lesser time you know lesser hours but I think I you know I also wanted to make the point too of going back to um what Amy was saying about cooking and that's that's certainly one of the things with with lockdown I actually find myself not being able to attend so many community events actually having a lot more time in my week um and the thing that's filled that time is is actually cooking like I'll, I'll sit down and I'll cook dinner each night and you know I've got time to bake cakes and, and do all these things that I wouldn't otherwise have you know I'd be going to the I'd be going to the supermarket and buying a packet of biscuits rather than making my own um you know and you sort of get back to this point of like well you know, we can actually fill up our time. We can do these things that, that probably seem, you know, somewhat trivial when we talk about them, but actually at the end of the day, from a wellbeing point of view, you know, have a lot of, have a lot of meaning. And I mean, I grew up in a busy household with lots of siblings and people coming, you know, coming in and out all the time. And, you know, the hive of, the hive of our household was always the kitchen. Like there was always stuff going on in the kitchen. And so for me, sitting down and, and cooking is, is not just about making food that I, you know, most of the time like eating, unless I stuff up the recipe and burn it, <laughs> but most of the time like eating. It, you know, it's also about that process of the making and, and the constructing and, and really getting in there and doing that. And, you know, you know, people, people come over like, oh, what's going on, you know, and you get involved and it's just, I just love having a busy kitchen. Um, but it leads me to this other point that I think we haven't really touched on um, so far is, is that I think inherent within the discussion we've had on a four-day work week, we've assumed we all get one day off. We work four days um, and we all have one extra day off. We have three days off in total. And I think in some of the models that have happened around the world that, that they've actually still worked five days but worked reduced hours. And I think there's a lot of validity in looking at that too because if you're working less hours, you've got time to come home. Like I, I find, you know, if I come home from work, even at five or six o'clock in the evening, like the last thing I want to do is, is get stuck into baking a meal that's going to take a while. Like I just make the quickest, easiest thing. Like it's going for that convenience factor as opposed to, you know, a bit more of a labour of love, whereas like I've got time to actually, you know, marinate this properly rather than just throw together what I've got. And so like this idea that a four-day work week could actually be a reduction in hours spread across five days but still in line as all those things that I like to do, which is having a really good meal time in the evening and having the time to prepare a meal that I wouldn't otherwise have is also appealing. And so when we start talking about how do we actually, you know, how do we get to what we're doing and how do we get the benefits from that? You know, I think we can't discount this idea that it's not just about working four days and having three days off. You know, there can be some other more fluid interpretations of the number of hours we work. Which is why it needs to be worker power, like worker led, right? It's about... You living the life that you want, not the life that your employer wants you to lead. Can I can I put a, a sort of a slight, um, I don't know, slightly play devil's advocate against that? Like Amy, early on, you also 
sort of came out pretty strong for total autonomy for how for sort of um, individual kind of implementation and how people experience reduction in working hours. There's strong evidence that a four-day work week would reduce carbon emissions that come from office spaces and um, commuter travel, but the environmental effects really hinge on how we implement it, right? So um, to have a meaningful effect on office energy consumption, people can't take staggered days off, you know, like everyone has to be off on the same day if you're not going to be running all the lights and the air conditioning and the computers, et cetera, um, to, you know, like if you want the maximal benefit at least. Um, and the benefits of a long weekend are pretty much nothing if um, everybody takes the weekend off to like fly up to the Gold Coast for some sun, whatever. So I guess, I don't know, I want to sort of ask is there, there just have to be a trade-off between uh, maximizing the environmental gains and allowing people to have full the full pleasures of the reduced working week. Um, you know, because I kind of come down on the side that the, the crisis is bad enough that um, it has to take precedence. Um, but what do you guys think? Yeah, I think I think um, Jacob is a really good point, and you know, I, I guess more with my um, my planners hat, my professional background. Or when you raised that, I, I instantly went to, oh, we're we're dropping carbon emissions because our um, our commute's gone down, our transportation mm. tasks gone down. Um, but as we decarbonize our our transport fleet, we'll see that reduce anyway. The work week won't be that the the you know the sole determinant of that. Um, I think you know it's interesting with the buildings too because that was the other part I went to in thinking, oh, okay, well there'll be one day a week that we don't have to power all these buildings. Um, but I think we can also get there by reducing the floor space that that we're using. So the, so the overall quantum is still the same. So we can still get that benefit. Um, so I guess the point I'm getting to is 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 there's not there's not a you know if we do this we're going to end up with this result there is a way to find a way through we just need to think about it um and being more flexible in how we do stuff i mean i think i think you know by the same token in the in the report where it was saying well if you can power down the building one day a week you get this huge um savings on electricity usage and therefore you get this huge saving on um emissions going out great if you're getting from renewable energy anyway you arguably it becomes a moot point if you're not doing from renewable energy if you just want to power it down it's like well you can still do that by say reducing your footprint of your building by 20 percent because you have people coming in different days and you can be flexible in how you use the space so that there's more than one way to get there i guess and i think the important part is that we're putting um the thought into how we're minimizing the environmental impacts of what we're moving towards because that's not what we've done in the past we've just said we need to do this this is the way we're going to do it and we're not going to consider the cost to the environment. And we've seen that through, you know, all this anthropogenic carbon emissions that have gone out there and through industrialization. We went, we need this. This is going to be great for society, but we've not thought about the impact to the environment and how that then comes back and impacts society and the crisis that we're now living in. Um, and hopefully we can take that learning and start going, well, if we're moving to this new way of doing things, how do we do it in a way that is also good for the environment? So the other think- thing... So I was just going to say, I think that's right. <laughs> okay. so I'm interrupting you again, Nick. Um, <laughs> I think one, one of the, like, I, I haven't looked closely at the study, but, like, we live in Canberra where it's 11 fuck degrees, like, 30 days of, of the year, right? Um, and so what's the implication of people not going to the office on those days is that we've just cranked the air conditioning all day in all of those houses instead or that people are dying of heat stress because they can't go into their into their building or, or into a mall or, in, you know, into a 
library that's 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 called. So I feel I feel like we actually probably need to do the analysis on that mm. properly to understand what mm. that looks like in the in the Canberra context. And and I I do worry about the inequity of climate control, which is quite is quite bad in the ACT. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that houses are too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter for people under a certain um, income bracket. Um, and no, you've been so to my of, house in the winter. I've been to your house in the winter. <laughs> and I nearly died. Um, and and so and so um, workplaces are a buffer against that. And so if if we shut them all down on that on that one day. Have we just pushed that? If we, if we push the responsibility for that onto individuals who can't pay it, and in fact the environmental payoff is minimal, but the, um, the you know the burden is is higher. So I think I think we need to kind of look more closely at that. Sorry. Well, also, like, oh no, I was going to make the same point. And so what I'd add to your point is that like the density of office buildings is generally greater than the suburban home, right? So yes, we may be pushing them. Like yeah, if we're pushing it out to people and assume that everyone has an air conditioning unit, but they're using it for a house that's a bigger like square meterage per person than the office space that they've been inhabiting. Uh, and whether there's like, like, I don't know how many offices are using some sort of like low energy or like low energy use or energy efficient um, kind of air conditioning or are connected to solar power or what, but like you can address the building stock um, in something like an office building to get better environmental benefits a lot more easily than you can an entire suburban kind of yeah, yeah. population. But, but, you know, I mean, my head's just exploding in this conversation because I, I sit here, you know, and talk to people and they're like, oh, like we can make office buildings more comfortable than homes. And it's like, why, why should your home be the least comfortable environment that you live in? No, and we have, we have terrible building stock here in Canberra because we, we've just built these cookie cutter homes that's come out, you know, look don't get me started we'll be here for another hour but but it's like making improvements to the energy efficiency and the performance of houses is actually not that complicated if we turn our mind to it and there is a lot of thinking and there's a lot of um, application that can go into it and there's a lot we can do with what's there and you know if one of the benefits of turning to this is actually improving the environment that people live in I say go for it that's a great thing Um, and you know just bear in mind like Amy was saying is is that that is more accessible to some people than others and you know in a, in a city that cares which i think canberra is one of those cities you know how do we make sure that everyone gets that benefit um and you know like uh, yeah anyway mind blowing benny invite me back jacob invite me back we can talk for an hour on how we can make people's homes more habitable um through, yeah, through, no. some, good, through some good design and through you know actually thinking about how you know how we don't just make a box but we make something that that you know is a home that people have comfort in <laughs> yeah, our listeners might not be aware that you're a qualified town planner <laughs> it's the interest in it um but look i i think this this general part like it is interesting we've gone from covid and talking about the disruption there and then into uh, thinking about the environmental benefits of moving to a four-day week uh and it does really fry up some really interesting sort of areas as, as you guys have all highlighted there one thing i wanted to touch to uh, touch on like the, the one hand people are having more time to prepare to have food one of the things i think is a really important thing around emissions is it really would really support that idea of buying lo- your local food first uh they're just just in time um production of um convenience food if you like is is quite amazing the uh, the networks that go on between um um, big chain stores, um, food distribution hubs, and all the rest of it is is quite incredible. Where 
you actually your food is coming from, whether it's overseas or um, you know the other part of Queensland down to the ACT. If you actually have something set up in a way that incentivizes people to have some more time to think about where they're going to get things, um, yes, it actually could on could have some very positive knock on knock on effects mm-hmm. in terms of um, emissions uh, and the like. Which is one thing I thought about. Also. Um, uh, the general thing about food waste as well, um, you know, there's, there's tons and tons and tons and tons of, of food which has come from elsewhere or the like that's, you know, uh, goes bad faster if it's come from else, you know, particularly if it's meant to be fresh food. Um, it comes in refrigerated and and, and it um, it goes bad sooner. Uh, so if you actually, you know, have a, have a situation where you start thinking more about what are we going to, like Suzanne was talking about, well, and, you know, in Norway, you had to think about we didn't have eggs for, you need eggs for the Sunday because you can't buy eggs. So if we could actually think about like, well, oh, there just aren't as many eggs on the shelves today. Like, uh, you know, just suck it up. It might actually be better for the world. Um, is is a weird, interesting knock-on effect there of um, lessening our, our reliance on having, you know, um, uh, for example, like um, milk imported from Northern Queensland to the ACT just doesn't kind of make sense when we actually make our own milk in the ACT. Yeah, it's weird things like that. Um, I guess lastly on the emission stuff, um, you know, I think, I think we've covered a lot of it. It's obviously it's quite complicated to get our heads around it, but there are the, some great studies there um, that are linked to in the discussion paper, which are really worth. And there's that interesting article. What was the name of the one, um, Jacob, the one from the UK? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I've got it here. Give me one sec and I will tell you it is Stop the Clock, the Environmental Benefits of a Shorter Working Week. Um, that's from the four-day week campaign from Platform London. Uh, all right, so Suzanne. Can you hmm. please tell us and our, our great listeners all about how, if they're in the ACT, they can make a submission to this uh, ACT government inquiry? Yeah, look, I think that's a really good question because I think, um, you know, the committees are a really good way for, for you know, every Canberran just to actually interact with the parliamentary process. It's, it's one where they can say, I'm going to write something down, I'm going to put my thoughts into it and it's going to be included. And the committee you know, it has to work with the evidence it's got. So if you make a submission, that becomes evidence and it has to be considered. Uh, so there's a really good opportunity there for, you know, for everyone who's got an opinion on this topic. And, it, you know, it doesn't have to be in any particular way, but, you know, as we've discussed now, there's so many things to think about. This is quite complex. There's so many different perspectives to take in. Like, just write yours down, send it in, and mm-hmm. the committee can consider it. And and the, the process that the committee goes through will be so much more enriched by having those different perspectives and, and having that evidence to really draw from and, and to actually start to work through this issue. So it's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, you can just write an email into the committee secretary and say, I want this to be my submission. Um, you know, you know, if you like us, if you wax in lyrical for a couple of hours on a Friday evening, <laughs> um, you know, you know, get get your thoughts together, put them on a page and shoot them through to the committee secretary and and you know, Bob's your uncle, you've got a submission to the inquiry and you've had your you've had your say and 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 enlivened democracy in our territory. <laughs> And you can also make a collective submission as well, right? So um, I also yeah. encourage people, you know, go to your um, at, at your union, go to talk to your political organizer and say, you know, we should we should put in a submission as well. Um, things like that that'd probably be really useful as well. And I reckon while you're doing a submission, have a think about the time that takes and how if you only worked thirty hours a week, you would have more time to engage in the governance of the society you live in. Wouldn't that be <laughs> fabulous? Here, here. Nick, you've put some pen to paper about, like we've talked about how 
Um, so it's ACT residents can make a uh, submission to the inquiry. But how, mm-hmm. what's other ways people can get and support um, this campaign? That I know we're involved in. We, we're really keen uh, to keep talking about it, you know? Um, yeah. So being a full-time worker and not having a four-day work week yet, I'm trying to find the time to organise a lot of this stuff. But what we're keen to do is um, through our Labor Party subbranch, um, get a bunch of conversations happening around the various aspects of the four-day work week. So, um, like, I'm interested in helping people to contribute to the political process. Um, But I think with an issue like this, there's an element of education that I think would be interested to happen, but then there's also discussions. So what we're keen to see are some speakers um, give presentations and give talks um, to help people on the education side of the issue, but then also get groups together. So people who might be happy to like host a conversation with a bunch of their friends and explore it more in depth um, amongst themselves. So sort of similar to the conversation that we've been having on this podcast, but amongst your friends, right? Like people that you know, people that like are in different industries that might have a view on on how this could happen. And then, you know, with either with uh, your friends or with your Labor Party or with whoever, write a submission in. So, like, you can send in individual ones. We could help you draft a collective one. Um, The thing is trying to help people find their voice because not everyone has the time to do it all themselves um, or they might not be confident with it. Like, I find that a lot of the time people are looking for the right way to contribute and, when you tell them that, you know, however you contribute is the right way, they're like, oh, no, 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 but, you know, can you give me an example? Um, so helping get people over those barriers to be kind of like, no, 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 you've got something worth saying, I'll help you put it forward. Um, that's the sort of thing that I'd be interested in doing. Fantastic. And to get in contact, like, it's really easy to find Black Mountain Subbranch, uh, which is the heartland of um, many Wonderful yep. socialists in the ACT. We've um, got an email address. Uh, yeah, there's an email address, don't you? Black Mountain, all one word, at actlabor.org.au. And you can actually find all the lists of um, Labor Party subbranches in the ACT on the ACT Labor website, unlike other states and territories. Well, they'll even let you know who to call, um, who the conveners are, funnily enough, and when they meet and where. Go ACT. There you Pretty go. Nice. Uh, but also look other groups and you know whatever you know we'd happily work with anyone. All right, cool. I would love to thank our guests uh, for being with us tonight, Nick Dixon Wilmshurst, Amy Haddad, and uh, the Right Honourable Suzanne Orr. I know it's not an official title, but I just thought it'd be fun to say. Um, thank you so much for being with us, guys. Um, it was fantastic. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. It was a great time. Thanks for having us. We, uh, we could spend thirty hours a week talking about this. Yeah, we could. Yeah. <laughs> And as always, uh, you can uh, subscribe to the Dog Capital Twitter feed, uh, the Facebook page. They're both um, at Dog Capital, D-O-H-K-A-P-I-T-A-L. You can send us an email if you'd like to tell us we're doing a bad job or a good job or ask a question or suggest a topic for a show, uh, dogcapital at gmail.com. But we take the most serious suggestions. We take most seriously the suggestions that come from our, our patrons on Patreon. And so uh, you would also do very well uh, to head over to patreon.com forward slash doll capital. And uh, you can kick us five bucks, 10 bucks a month and uh, help us keep making the show. 
Um, and as Ben said at the top of the show, we've only we've just got our first few few patrons, um, including Nick. Um, good on you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Um, thanks for supporting show. the show. You're welcome. And uh, that about wraps us up for the show. So thanks so much for listening. And um, thanks again to our guests. Have a lovely day or night, wherever you are. Thank you.